Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for this opportunity to come together. Lord, we thank you for the comfort that we have in you for when, when things happen to us and around us that we know that you're in control. Lord, we ask you to bless us as we open this uh, study and we look at the book of Isaiah. We ask you to guide and lead us. Show us what you would have us to, to see through all of this. In Jesus' name, amen. Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 26. This is a beautiful song of praise all of a sudden in the middle of his <laughs> prophecy. Uh, remember that last week, actually the last two weeks, we were talking about uh, the salvation of Israel and kind of the millennial kingdom and the reign of Christ. And we are setting the stage because the very uh, first sentence in this, uh, this uh, chapter starts in that day. So it's talking about what, what's already been talked about. And uh, if you remember, we were talking about how God would destroy things and Jesus would be raised up and we saw the millennial kingdom. And Isaiah, a lot of times, brings out the millennial kingdom. He's, he's very, very prophetic of the end days. And uh, we're going to see this beautiful song in, it, it, in, its, in its glory. Chapter 26, verse 1. In that day shall this song be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. Salvation will God appoint for walls and bulwarks. Open you your gate the gate and that the righteous nation which keeps the truth may enter in. You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust, in the, trust you in the Lord forever for the Lord Jehovah is everlasting strength. For he brings down them that dwell on high, the lofty city, he lays it low. He lays it low even to the ground, he brings it even to the dust. The foot shall tread it down, even the feet of the poor and the steps of the needy. The way of the just is uprightness. You, most upright, do weigh the path of the just. Yea, in the way of your judgments, O Lord, have we waited for you. The desire of our soul is, is to your name and to the remembrance of you. With my soul I have desired you in the night. Yea, with my spirit within me I seek you early. And when your judgments are in the earth, the inhabitants of the world will learn rightness. Let favor be showed to the wicked, yet will he not learn righteousness. In the land of uprightness will he deal unjustly and will not behold the majesty of the Lord. The Lord, when your hand is lifted up, they will not see, they, will, they shall see and be ashamed for their envy at the people. Yea, the fire of the enemies shall devour them. All right, so we look at this, and it starts out in that day referring back to the previous paragraph, uh, previous chapters, talking about the millennial kingdom. And it says, in that day shall, the, shall this song be sung in the land of Judah. Now let's go back to the millennial kingdom. When Jesus comes back at the end of the seven-year tribulation period, he comes down on Mount Olive. His foot touches Mount Olive. Mount Olive splits and forms a new river, the Dead Sea is re replenished, and he sets up his kingdom in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. So the song that's in Judah was, is when Jesus uh, uh, sets up his kingdom for a hundred, uh, yeah, a thousand years on this, on this world. And it says, the song will be, they have a strong city, which is gonna be talking about Jerusalem, Salvation will God appoint within the walls and the bulwarks. And this idea of the, 
appointing. He is going to make it happen. He's, you know, and the great news for us is God is in control. To me, that's the greatest standard I can ever hold on to. God is in control. He is sovereign. Even when it looks like to us he's lost track of his marbles and can't, isn't in control, he is still in control. Because he sees things from a lot different way than we do. When I was a training manager, there were many times when I would have to put somebody in charge of my store, and it was really nerve-wracking the first time. Because you had to let this person come to the brink of disaster sometimes that you know and the good management people would see that the you know the disaster was coming from from you know a half hour an hour before it was coming and you'd watch this guy you know this this man or this woman running your store and you'd have to decide how far am i going to let them go and you had to kind of watch each individual because when they hit their point because you had to let them get into the, into the weeds before you'd say, okay, are they going to get themselves out of it? To let you know. You know, God does that with us oftentimes. He says, I'm going to let you guys wander in there. You know, I could stop you. I could stop you from going off in this strange direction and bad, bad situation. But are you going to turn to me and trust me in the midst of it all? And this is something that I see from God. You know, he oftentimes appears to have let, lost control as he lets things work themselves out. But when we turn to him, he says, okay, I was just waiting for that. You know, and for me, when I was running these places, there would be that time I'm going, here's what I'm going to do. Here's my plans you know, if I have to take over. I already knew what I was going to do. Hopefully that person would manage their way out of it. Uh, sometimes I'd have to step in and and fix the, fix the issue before they drove my store too far down, the, down. But you know, God has appointed things for us and he knows what he's doing. Even when it seems like he doesn't know what he's doing because he's letting us, how far will you go without me? And for our case, we always want to turn to God. So the, the sooner we turn to God, the better we are learning our lesson. Uh, when we're immature with God, we go, God, I can do this. I can, I can do this. You know, we can, if you've ever been around a toddler or a, or a young, young preschooler, I can do this. I don't need help as they spill everything all over the place. <laughs> uh, and God's saying, okay, you want to do it yourself? I'm going to let you do it. But you know, ultimately, he's really wanting us to turn to him and say, God, I need you. And we look at that originally from our flesh and say, that's weakness but God's saying, that's the perfect strength. You need me. You were, you were created, and we were created for needing God. Adam and Eve walked with God every day. I, I kind of envy that and sometimes, you know, just being able to, to walk personally with him and talk with him, you know, in person. <laughs> you know, Jesus, Jesus came down, walked with them in the flesh, in the cool of the night, every night. Can you imagine what it would be like to talk that way to God? What, what would you learn? You know, what did they learn? You know, how did they, did they learn the names of all the stars and the planets and, and intimate information about uh, creation that they would never have known without him or would have taken them you know, millennia to learn? Uh, what did they learn? Because the amazing thing about this is 
and you may not know this, but in every single language, the name of the days, other than Hebrew, because they don't name the days, are named after the planets in order. Okay? You know, Sunday through Saturday are named after the planet from, or the sun and the planets in order. They're named after the, after the planets. How did the original people that started these languages know about that? God had to have told them about, about things. It's an amazing thing, because I did a lot of research. I studied, I looked in and translated and looked at these different words, and they're all named the same way. You know, what did God share with Adam and Eve? How much knowledge did Adam and Eve have before, even before the fall? You know, and we think about this. You know, we have this tendency to think, all oh, those people back then were so stupid, they didn't know anything. You know, I think they were oh, they were very smart. You know, the things they came up with were amazing. And I think God gave them most of this. But you know, how advanced were they before the flood? We don't know how advanced they were before the flood, but they had, you know, the starting off with God talking to them. You go back to that very first genealogy in the Bible, and it talks about the sons of Cain. And we get to advanced metallurgy within three generations, four genera- three or four generations of Adam and Eve. Yeah, and God's still talking to them. And still talking to them and still teaching them. And, you know, how far did they go beyond that? It would be an amazing thing to be able to see. But it also took them, just as in our generation, as we're getting more and more knowledgeable about things, we're getting further and further away from God and more and more into sin, and that was what it was happening before the flood. You know, and we just look at this. God is in charge. He allows a lot. And why does he allow so much? Well, I personally believe it is so that when people stand before him at the white throne judgment, he's going to say, you knew. You knew better. You chose to do wrong. I gave you lots of chances. I showed my love towards you so often, and yet you rejected me. Because it says in the New Testament that no man will be without excuse before God. They'll know. They'll know. And we've talked about this. You know, people can't, you know, even if they say, well, I didn't know God's rules, they can't even keep their own rules. All right? We can't keep our own rules, much less knowing God's rules. Well, God, I'm never going to do such and such. And the next thing we know, we're doing exactly what we said we'd never do or societal rules. We can't even keep society's rules. You know, some of them are dumb, but I mean, even the good ones, we just, we can't obey those rules and God's gonna say, okay, you didn't keep my rules? You didn't keep your rules. You didn't keep, you didn't keep your government's rules. You didn't, he'll, he'll go right down the list and you know, get down to you. You didn't even keep your own rules. <laughs> and when he stands before God, they will be without excuse. And here they're saying, in that day, God will appoint salvation as the walls to the city and the bulwarks, the, 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 the big uh, guarding walls that they have on these things. And he says, open you your gate you, that the righteous nation which keeps the, keeps the truth may enter in. I love this. Now, I, there hasn't been a nation that has kept, <laughs> kept the truth, but when Jesus is reigning, truth will reign. Why? Because he's in charge. And it's going to be an amazing thing. We can't even picture what it's going to be like. When we get to the millennial kingdom, it says that if somebody doesn't live to be 100 years old, he's, he's a child. 
Uh, you know, we're going to be back to long life. Uh, what God's going to do, I don't know. Is he going to just clean up everything, clean up the gene pool during that period of time? I don't know exactly how he's going to do it, but these people are going to have long life. And if they're diet, you know, diet 100, their child. If we're going to age there, we're not going to age. We as Christians will not. We will have our glorified bodies. They, the ones that are in the millennial kingdom, remember that people are going to be living in the millennial kingdom in their, flesh, in their flesh that made it through the tribulation period. Very few of them. The, the ones who did not take the mark of the beast will go, enter into the tribulation period, uh, the millennial kingdom. They didn't take the mark of the beast, yeah. so they're... Yeah, they it depends on what, how you want to go on that. It's, they, they, it, they should be getting saved. They're going to live in the millennial kingdom, and remember, at the end of the millennial kingdom, Satan is released to tempt the people to rebel. So for a thousand years, you're going to have as close to paradise on earth as we've ever had since the Garden of Eden. God will be ruling with an iron scepter. No, no, nobody's going to be doing these evil things and, and, and harsh things without punishment. It won't be like how we're living right now. No, not at all like what we're, we're living right now. Jesus is going to reign. It will be a, as close to perfection as a human with sin nature can be. And then Satan will be released to tempt people one last time. Now, what, what does our world say nowadays? Well, if we just had a perfect environment that we'd have no problems... Well, they're going to have a, a millennia with, no, with a perfect environment, a perfect king, a perfect ruler, uh, Holy Spirit ministering, all these things are going on, and people are still going to rebel against God at the end of the thousand years, and we'll have the great battle, the great final battle. It doesn't last long. <laughs> he just speaks a word and it's over. But you know, that's one thing about when you fight God, you, you, you're not going to win. <laughs> He just speaks in, in your, and the battle's over. But there will be this re last rebellion against him from a people that have lived for a thousand years in as close to perfection as we can, can have with human nature involved. And yet they will sin and fall. And probably the majority of them will sin and fall. And you know, this is quite an amazing thing when you think about this. And Jesus, and they says here, Open your gate that the righteous nation that keeps truth can come in. And I think those will be those who truly want to follow God. Because in the millennial kingdom, there will be those who are, just as it is in our day, really following God, and those who are just play-acting, just as it is in most churches. We have the percentage of people who really are following God. They're, they love him. They've decided they're going to turn their entire life over to him. And then you've got a whole bunch of people in the church that are play acting. Just, well, it's a good thing. You know, I feel good coming to church. It's all right. And we see this, you know, in the New Testament, Jesus told the parable of the wheat and the tares. And he says, you know, and it was the farmer planted wheat and tares came up and he said, don't tear up the, the tares until the harvest because the wheat and tare apparently look exactly alike as they're growing until they get to the fruiting stage where you have wheat and no wheat. And it says, at that point, now we can cut it away. We know, we know what, we're, what we're taking out. And there are many people in churches that look and act like 
supposed Christians, you know, whatever, whatever a Christian is supposed to look like and act like. Uh, ideally, the Holy Spirit needs to be in us. And when, you know when you meet somebody who's a Christian many times because the Holy Spirit meet each other and it's like, oh, yes, I know this, you know. I, if I can say anybody's a Christian, I, this one I'm pretty sure is a Christian. Now, and it's been said when we get to heaven, there's two things that will surprise us. Who is there and who is not there, <laughs> okay? Because there's going to be those people where we go, wow, that person was always at church. They, they knew their Bible. They seemed to be pretty good. They didn't know Jesus. Then we're going to have that person like, what? Yeah, you, know, you only came to church once a month, and you know, how, how would you get in here? God's grace, he knew, he knew Jesus. That's what's amazing, like how you're just saying that, that we're going to remember, because I would think, are we going to remember everything, that a lot of things? That's what I, I say, since heaven is a perfect place, we, I know. it's all well, goodness. Only remember I'm wondering good if we're going to remember the, the, the if we find out someone isn't there, who would be sad? There's two schools of thought on that. One is that God will wipe out their memory from us completely. I have trouble with that because there's things that we grew and learned even with people that aren't following God. The other school of thought, and I tend to agree with, is because we understand things from God's perfect perception, we will understand that they got what they, you know, got what they wanted and deserved, and it will not affect us. Yes, there'll be some some sadness because they're not where we want them to be, but we will understand from God's way of thinking why things happened. Uh, so I tend to believe that we'll get a more fuller knowledge. Uh, you know, this person made their bad decision. Would we remember every bad thing that ever happened? Probably not. Uh, will we but by the same token, once we see it from his perspective, and I see, okay, this person harmed me in this way, but this is what God did to, to grow me through that perspective. I think we'll understand it differently and it won't affect us. Because we'll see the positive that God worked out of our life from it. And he said that there would be no tears, and so we wouldn't be... Well, that's what I'm thinking. Our emotions are going to be won't different. be the same. They'll be, very, they'll be different. They'll be different. But again, even in our walk here, we go through something hard that brings tears and depression to us. And if we live long enough, we go back to it and we start saying, okay, God, oh, we look at it totally different. It's not with that same depression and everything. We look back and say, okay, God, yes, I see what you did from that. Yeah, it still got a little pain. You know, I, I didn't really want it, but I see what was accomplished by it. And I think from heaven, we'll see it so perfectly yeah, we'll see the front of the tapestry instead of the back of the tapestry, and we'll see it in a way that says, oh, yeah, that did hurt, but look what, look what came out of it. Now, there's two schools, and it's going to be somewhere in between. You know, he's going to wipe out what, what we can't handle and keep what, you know, keep the others. That's possible, too. I don't, you know, I hate saying there's any one extreme, because usually when I find extremes, the answer, the truth usually lies somewhere in the middle between the two. So it could be a combination of him showing us the good and then taking out things that just aren't going to make sense to us. That, because not everything that ever happens to us is for our good. You know, and I've shared with you my gout experience where it wasn't for my good. It was for somebody watching me you know, in my response to the pain that they were encouraged. So God would probably wipe out that, 
that, or because I understand that it was for their good, you know, he could also be, it could be just that. He'll say, you went through this and it helped you or it helped them or it helped them and be able to show us the why behind it. Because a lot of times once we understand the why a little bit, it takes the pain out of something. It takes the, the bruising out of it. It's like, okay, yes, God, you put me through that so I'd be ready to take this pain that's, that's harder. And so that's my belief. You know, there is a school of thought, though, that says God will wipe out every bad, bad thing. But, but you've got to understand my thought process in the first place is there's nothing bad that happens to us because God will work out all things good for good. So I don't really believe that there's anything bad. And that's why I say so often when things appear to be bad, God is doing something. And, you know, in our moment, it looks bad. It looks terrible. And I'm going to say, you know, that's why I say when it appears to be bad from my limited perspective, but I've lived long enough with God to start seeing that many things that I thought were bad in the past were a trial that built me up or taught me something or led me down a, down a stronger path. So I don't believe that he's going to wipe out all the memories of the bad. I just believe he's going to reveal to us what happened because of it and make it easier. And if, we, if, it's something, if it was something we could not handle, even knowing the, the, the why and how it was touching, just, he's powerful enough to wipe that out. Probably it depends on well you know you, there will be people that you know aren't there and if, if it's somebody that for some reason our emotions couldn't handle he'd wipe out the, he'd wipe out that memory but God I think if he explains it and again if we get to where we understand from God's perspective every opportunity that person had to choose God and they rejected him we might be a little sad that they rejected him but we're going to say, we're going to understand they're where they chose. And I think once we understand that perspective on it, it's not going to be as, as damaging as it, as it would be. Because God's going to well, I gave them 500 chances to accept me, and they rejected every one of them. You know, I gave them 12,000 chances, and they rejected me. You know, and that's why I say when God, I believe that God will have, feel some pain when he sends people to hell. Because that's what they want. He'll understand that's what they want, but there is his creation his creation and it will hurt to have to send his creation to hell even though that's what they chose and so i think we'll be in that same place where it won't be devastating pain to us they're getting what they chose and i think we'll understand it at that point and if i'm wrong then god will wipe out all the memories we won't ever have the but i just think there's too much interaction with people to wipe out every memory because it would be all these big holes in your in what you're remembering, and that would be probably worse than, than, yeah, than understanding why. But, but that really is the truth. The closer we draw to him, the more we understand everything, the more that makes sense to us, or the more we don't even care because our mind is focused on him. I was watching a movie just the other day where it was talking about how a husband and wife can have a better relationship, and it was the, the person had drawn a triangle on her on, on the one hand. They said, "When you understand this, and they go, the two people, the closer they get to God, the closer they get to each other." And that really is true. The closer we get to God, 
the more everything else seems to make sense because God's in, in control. And the further we get away from God, <laughs> the more chaotic everything always seems. And I don't even know how people stay together in a marriage without God in, in the midst of their marriage. It would be just total chaos, and I don't know how it could be done otherwise, uh, other than the old ball and chains and you know, battle acts and all the things you hear about you know, from the world is negative to you is people stay together because they feel they have to and they just feel it's total you know, drudgery. But when we put God in the midst of it and we're drawing closer to God, then he's, you know, it, amazing how, as you said, things just change. The whole way we look at it changes. But, you know, we're on this line that talks about, in verse 3 is kind of the, the, you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. You know, you, God, will keep, guard us in perfect peace. Now, in Hebrew, this perfect peace is shalom, shalom. It says it's peace twice. Uh, but the idea, when we read the word peace in the Old Testament, Shalom is a very deep word. It, it's translated peace. But when the Hebrew or the Jewish person says shalom, they mean so much more than peace because it is the whole idea of tranquility, contentment, uh, soundness, you know, complete soundness of mind that they're, when they use this word uh, for peace. And it says God will keep us in peace, peace. <laughs> You know, uh, you know, doubling up on it. He says, it, the one time which is really good is just not enough for this sentence. I'm really going to double it up on you. And we think about this, is what, what we were just saying. The closer we draw to God, the more we are at peace. The more our mind is made sound. The more that we are just in a tranquil place. Because God is in control. And the more we trust him, the more we focus on him, the easier life gets. And, you know, the world looks at us and says, you guys are just a bunch of nuts. You know, you're, you're, you're walking around blind. You don't know. I'm walking in the one who is my perfect uh, protection. He's, he's my fortress. He's my protector. He is my peace. He is in control. And this is the one thing, and I've said this so many times, when we are focused on him, when we're hidden in him, we can go through the harshest storms in our life and not even realize that we're in the middle of a storm. And that's when it's really fun. You kind of get you kind of get out to the other end of the storm and you look back and you go, wow, an awful lot has happened. I wonder, you know, why didn't I feel it? Why didn't I notice it? I did, God, I didn't notice any of this. And God just said, you were sleeping really soundly inside the, inside the stone building. You didn't, you didn't notice the storm because you were at rest. And for us as Christians, our ultimate goal is faith rest in God where all we're doing is saying, God, you're in control. I'm just going to rest. You are the one that is in control of everything, and I don't have to worry about it. And it, it takes a lot of stress off us when we don't have to worry. Now, in Peter, we're told to cast all our cares on him, for he cares for us. You know, anything we want to worry about, anything that we want to be concerned about, we just need to give it to God. Because... Our, none of our worry is going to do any good anyway. We're not going to be in control of anything. We're not going to change anything by worrying about things. We're not going to uh, change anything. And anything that we could change, our worrying didn't make any changes anyway. We had to react when we got there. And so this is God 
says, I will keep you, I will guard you in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on him. And this idea of uh, our mind is all of our emotional being, our, our whole purpose, our imaginations. And he says, if our, if our thoughts, our purposes, our imaginations are stayed fixed in him, he's going to keep us in peace. And what does Satan try to do all the time? He tries to get our minds not stayed on him. And in our flesh, we oftentimes walk by sight. You know, the, the just, the, the righteous will live by faith, you know, and that's what God is wanting. He wants us to live by faith. We look at him and not by sight. Now, it is real easy for us to walk by sight. God, uh, this really looks bad. I'm going to go worry about this for a while. <laughs> because God, it looks bad. And God says, I'm in control. Every time we're in this place, we have a choice to make. Am I going to walk by faith and rest in, in God that he's in control? Or am I going to take off and try to do things myself? And God is such a gentleman that if we want to try to take off and do it ourselves, he'll let us. And he's standing there walking right behind us. Okay, when are you going to fall? You know, uh, we get into the middle of the quicksand and we're up to our, up to our eyeballs in, in quicksand. And God, help! <laughs> and then he finally rescues us. You know, if we just trip and fall, he's ready to help us the minute we ask. If, he, if we want to go under for the third time, uh, he'll, he'll be there waiting for, waiting for us to finally say, God, help. But he is never going to make us do things his way. He gave us the ability to make our own decisions. And he will allow us to, to make our decisions even to our own hurt. Because there's consequences for everything we do. And he'll let us live in those consequences. That's what he wants us. If we want to really mess up our life, he'll let us do it. Now, he is powerful enough and strong enough to then turn around and, and recover it and remake it. And he doesn't just patch up the wood and everything. He totally remakes it. Okay? Us in our human places, we'd, we'd let our kid build the fort and fall down. We'd have to put splints and everything on, the, on it. God just says, okay, I'm just going to give you a new piece of wood. I can make the new piece of wood for you. But there's still consequences that happen when we disobey God. And we face those. Sometimes those consequences are not too bad. Sometimes they're drastic. We read about David last night in going to the, uh, the priest Ahimelech, telling him a lie. The consequence to that lie we're going to find out in two chapters, you know, a couple weeks from now, is that Ahimelech and the other priests are killed because of David's lie. That's quite a consequence. You know, and think about that. That's a consequence for a lie. <laughs> yeah. We don't usually think of lies having that significant of a consequence, that somebody's going to die because of it. And yet that has happened, and many times it's happened in, in life, especially when governments get involved with lies. Uh, but you know, they have these consequences. Satan is trying always to get our minds off God. And God says, if you just put your mind on me, I will keep you in perfect peace. And then the last part of that verse says, because he trusts in you. All right? He keeps us, and we are stayed on him because we trust. 
And the word for trust, when we bring this up so often, literally is complete confidence. This is what it means when we say that we trust in Jesus. He is my complete confidence. I have no plan B. For us as a Christian, there is no plan B. If Jesus isn't who he says he is, if he isn't the, the, the creator of eternal life and the master and, the, and all of that, we don't have a plan B. Well, you know, Jesus, if you're not the right one, I think I'm going to go over here and I'm going to hedge my bet by, by worshiping uh, Krishna as well and worshiping the, you know, Baal. I'm going to worship a bunch of gods and, and hedge my bets. That's what the Jews were doing during their periods when they were away from God. They were worshiping all the other idols. Uh, during the Roman days, you know, most of the people in the Roman days did not pick one god to worship. They worshiped lots of the gods. They hedged their bets. Okay, well, if Mercury isn't enough, one or this one's a good one, you know, they, they worshiped five or six of them. So, well, maybe I'll, maybe I'll hit the right one. For us to truly be trusting in Christ, there is no plan B. There is no hedging our bet. He is either who he says he is or he's not. The good news that I can speak from my personal experience is he has been so faithful in my 48 years of following him, I know that he is going to be faithful for eternity. And even if he isn't, I've had nothing but blessings in this life. But because of my blessings in this life, I know that his true, that he's going to be true in the, for eternity. And it's a wonderful place to be when you know that you know. <laughs> and you go, God, I, your faithfulness. I just love his faithfulness. His blessings on this world, you know, which are just a shadow. Can you imagine it? You know, think about all the blessings he's given you in this life. And they're really just a shadow of what awaits us in heaven when we really get to see the reality of it. And I can't even, you know, it's mind-boggling to think because when you've been blessed as much in, in, in great ways that I have been on this walk, on this world, to know it's just the shadow, this, this, is, this isn't even the real stuff. And the feeling that you can't really close to God on this earth is only the shadow for what it really will be. You know, the times when I have been in worship and for just a few seconds have found myself literally feeling in the presence of God and knowing that that is just a shadow. I'd be happy if that's all it was. <laughs> you know, if that could be all the time, that would be wonderful. And it's the shadow of what it will be like when we're truly in his presence. But that is the wonder of God. You know, that he can spend, he has an individual plan for every single individual, every single individual in this world, not just Christians, but every single individual in this world that has ever lived or will live, he has an individualized plan for them. Now, they don't always want to live his plan, but he also knows that that's what they're going to do and has made his plan adaptable to their choices. You know, we think about this. God is just so far above anything that we can even fathom, and yet there he is with a perfect plan for us and saying, I want you to walk in this perfect plan, but if you don't walk in this perfect plan, I'll give you the next best plan. You don't want to walk in that one, I'll give you the next best one. Yeah. But we choose not to live in the perfect plan by our decisions. And then God gives us the next best possible plan based upon what we've done. One of the hardest things I do when I deal with people and try to counsel them 
is they've totally messed up their life by not doing things God's way, and then we have to try to bring God into their, into their, you know, into the plan. And that sometimes is very difficult. And when somebody's messed up their, messed up their life, they've had children with four different people. You know, and it's like, okay, how do we now make this God's way? That's a tough, tough uh, area to go into. Because what do you do? God said you were supposed to be one person for life, and you have played around and had all these others that you may or may not even have married, and how do you make that right? And it's a tough, tough place to be. You try to put God back in as best you can, and you know, it takes him to, to manage it many times. Uh, how many people have messed up their finances ter- terribly, and then God says, okay, I want you to do things my way. And that's a little easier. You just have to put your finances in his plan. But if you owe you know, $100,000 to people because you, went, you, know, you did disobeyed him and took out all these debts and loans, and they need to be paid, and God's saying, well, I still want you to give me my part, you're in a, you're in a tight place. You know, we make these decisions, and then trying to bring God into it afterwards has consequences, and we've talked about this so often, and this is, this is what I keep bringing up. Every act we have has a consequence. Some are very long-term. Some are not drastically long. Uh, somebody goes out on a, on a drinking binge, they're going to pay for it for at least 24 hours, <laughs> you know, if, if not more. You know. well, well, I'm just saying one binge. They, they just totally fall off. You know, they, they'll, if they don't do something stupid, <laughs> while they're in the middle of it. But let's say, let's say they just go off and they get totally wasted and then don't do something stupid. They don't drive home, they don't, you know, don't go sleep with somebody, whatever. You know, they got at least 24 hours worth of consequence. Okay, uh, short term. Now if they do something stupid, it could be mo- much more. They could get addicted, they could end up killing somebody. You know, there's any number of things that can happen. The consequences sometimes are very short, sometimes very long, but yet God is in control. And he will make something good out of what, what is happening. One of the greatest things when, we, when I talk to some of the prisoners out there is that there are many of them that said the greatest thing that's happened to them is actually going to prison. Because they finally, God got hold of them and revealed himself to them and they were able to make some life changes. And it's you know very interesting. Sometimes that what looks like the worst possible thing in our life could be end up being the thing we look back and saying, God, I am so glad that happened to me because it drew me so close to you that now I'm able to really follow you. And I think sometimes it takes hardship for people to really truly understand God because they all of a sudden realize I have a need that I can't accomplish. And that's what he's saying because their trust is in him. The confidence is in him. Then verse 4, trust you in the Lord forever, for he is the Lord Jehovah is everlasting strength. Or for in the Lord Jehovah is everlasting strength. We trust in God. Again, that's that confidence. (laughs) And why do we do it? Because he is everlasting strength. The good news is God is stronger than we can ever picture and, you know, this is the thing. How many of us picture God in his full strength? Probably hardly any of us. 
You know, God, you know, how did this happen to me? If you were really God, if you really knew what was going on, you could have stopped this. And God says, no, but I've got, I've got a good plan for you. You know, we, we also see his strength so often in the scriptures. You know, we see Elijah on Mount Carmel with 450 prophets of Baal, you know, and he's challenging them. And God delivers. He, he sends fire down from heaven, consumes the altar, uh, the, the, the uh, meat on the altar, destroy, you know, consumes the rock on the altar, all the water around the altar, turns, the, turns the, the ground around it to a glass and says, okay, did I show off enough? And controlled it so much that Elijah standing next to it didn't get burned. Okay, it melted everything and he didn't get hurt. You know, what control, what kind of power does God have? Okay, uh, we, we think about what Jesus did, told Pilate. He goes, you have no power over me. You know, if, if it was my father's will, I could call 10 legions of angels down. You know, all the Rome had was 12, you know, was, was 10 legions in the entire Roman, you know, legion, plus, plus the puppet, the, the, other, the other ones, but... You know, he says, I can call as many angels as you've got people in your entire army, Pilate. You, you don't have any power. And yet he died because that was what was best for us. You know, how many times will we make the decision to honor God even to our hurt? And oftentimes God's going to say to us, what are you willing to give up? For some people, they're not willing to give up anything. And they never do give up. Others end up having to give up everything. You read Fox's Book of Martyrs, and you've got a, hundreds of people in that book that gave up everything for God right down to death. You read almost anything put out by uh, Voice of the Martyrs, and they give us these stories of people who have given their life for God, who decided that God was worthy to die for, to suffer for. You know, a Richard Warmbrandt who, who keeps going out and you know, in his early days, they'd release him you know, from the jail and he'd go out and witness again and get arrested again. Witnessing in the prison to the guys that are beating him. You know, what are we willing to give up for God? You know, and that's my question, especially for the American church. What are we as Christians in America willing to go through to suffer to allow God to be lifted up? I, I watched the story about uh, Rachel Scott from Columbine, and she, she was ready to give up everything and ended up giving up everything. But even before her death, she says, I'm losing my friends because, God, I'm following you. I have no more friends. What was she willing to give up? Lifelong friends? You know, we, we, we look at this and say, what are we willing to sacrifice for God? Romans 12.1 says that we are a living sacrifice on the altar. What do we give up? What do we sacrifice for him to lift him up? When we run through suffering, do we immediately gripe and complain, God, you're, look at what you're doing to me? Or we go, God, you know, I'm, I know it's going to be for good. I'm looking, I'm, you know, help me get to where it's going to be good. We need to be able to look at these things and say, God, I trust you. I trust you. 
who knows where God will take us when we trust him? Yeah. Uh, and we'll, you know, because we, we look at this, and there was a story, and I'm just, I don't remember which evangelist it was, but it was a real famous evangelist in the 1800s, and he was called out to, at, to pray for rain for a place that hadn't had rain for months. And he came, and he had his umbrella, and he looked out in the crowd, and he goes, I see none of you came prepared for the answer. You know, he was absolutely sure God was going to give him rain, and he brought the umbrella. He goes, you guys asked me for, to pray for rain, and you didn't come ready for the answer. We need to be so faithful to God that we go, God, I'm ready for the answer, even if it's not what we want it to be. God, I'm ready for the answer. I'm willing to go through whatever you want me to do. In my office, I've got a sign that says, what is the value of one soul? What are we willing to go through if one soul was to get saved? One soul come to Christ. You know, Paul said, God, if, if it was able, I would give my life if all of Israel would, would be yours. I don't think I'm at that point yet. Okay? I don't know if I'm at that point for my family yet, you know, my extended family. You know, Moses said the same prayer. When God said, I want to destroy all of me, he says, God, take me instead. Now, God didn't take him up on the offer, but his heart was, God, they need more chances, so take me. I'm ready to, I'm ready to go, take me. What are we willing to give up for God if one soul was to come to Christ? And this is something we need to struggle with and think about. When we're going through hard times, is God trying to reach a soul? Is God trying to reach somebody around us? And that's quite possible that he's doing the pain to try to encourage somebody around us. Whether it's encourage them to walk closer to him, because we, we walked closer to him in it and they, and they were encouraged by that. Or literally, they get saved because of what we go through. We need to be able to look at this and say, God, I don't know what it is you've got planned for me, but I'm going to trust you. I'm going to follow you. And I'm going to honor you in what, whatever way you want me to do. Uh, Corey Tenboom was ch- challenged with that. She got out of, you know, Corey Tenboom went into the concentration camp because her family helped Jews. She got out of the prison, and God finally told her she needed to love the guards. And her initial reaction would be just what every one of us would say, absolutely no way. Oh, she's been many of the guards over time and finally, finally learned to, to love. But you know, are we ready to do whatever it takes for somebody to see God through our life? It takes time. And it probably isn't going to happen overnight. But we need to be ready to say, God, help me be ready to do whatever it is that you want me to do. Because we trust him. And sometimes what he asks us to do seems absolutely crazy. <laughs> at least for, to where we're at at the moment. You know, these martyrs didn't think it was the greatest thing, idea probably to go and die for, for God. And yet their names are written in books and encouraged people for centuries and millennia. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We ask you to be with us, guide us, lead us, show us to trust you more, teach us to follow you in a deeper way, 
And Lord, we just thank you that you love us so much that you will let nothing happen to us that is not for our good. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.